0: Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I chat with former Wallaby, ACT Brumbies and Ramwick rugby legend Owen Finnegan. Listen as he recalls the try he scored to win the 1999 World Cup. While recording this episode, we had a few tradies banging on the wall from next door, so apologies if you can hear some noise in the background. After that, we have Beach Banner and I go to the mailbag to answer questions from the fans. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Owen. This week in the uh, Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. It's uh, a long time since I've seen this guy, but uh, former Wallaby, Owen Finnegan. How are you, mate? Yeah, really well, mate. Looking forward to a bit of a chat, a bit of banter. Yeah, there'll be plenty of banter. And, uh, mate, as you know, you know, we uh, grew up down there at Bronte, and so going way back, you were there in the nippers at Bronte, and remember those days i
1: was i was i think I was about five years old and playing for saint charles at the time and uh the miller family were heavily involved in the surf club yeah. and bob miller came around and uh, had a chat to my parents and told them that i should be down doing a bit of you know fitness in the summer yeah. and a bit of on the boards and swimming and my mum and dad had you know coming out from ireland neither of them could swim yeah. so they were <laughs> they were like if you want to take responsibility for him you can have him but uh you know, so it was a great way to Know, to grow up and you know, it sort of me going there led to my whole family, you know, older yeah. siblings joining nippers and getting involved in the surf club, and you know, lots of uh, you know, running around with Matt Egan down yeah, there and yeah. the walkers and watching them and you know, both compete. And yeah. and uh, you know, so Bronny was a really enjoyable part of your life growing up as a
0: little nipper, yeah, mate. It was great. I was still do a bit of paddling with uh, Jimmy Walker, so yeah, he's still uh. Out there paddling, so it's, yeah, they it's, are. Yeah. And his
1: son Tom's, uh, yeah, yeah you know, coaching yeah. my son at water polo up yeah. at Waverley. So those connections and siblings and things, as that community yeah. keeps going. Like the the beach is a wonderful place.
0: Yeah. Uh, and it's amazing, uh, Brondi, Looking back, how many professional athletes it's produced? You know, in in, in football, in you know rugby, rugby league, in uh, surfing you know, water polo, There's, there's been so many events and produced so many- Yeah, so
1: Bronny as well, like, I, you know, I think I, I did the wrong thing when I was 16 or 17, apparently went over to Bondi <laughs> for, a, for a couple of years because a few of my mates were doing a bit of boat rowing and they needed yeah, yeah. an extra big lug. But all those, like, you know, my kids are in Coogee Surf yep. Club at the moment and they're down there training with, you know, a couple of the older blokes. It's yep. a great way to sort of learn, yep. you know, the surf, but also to, to learn a good work mm. ethic and, and yep. work hard and train hard and the surf club is for that. You yep. know, most of them got their own little gym there and yep. you, you see all the, the grommets and uh, all the young boys getting in there. Yep. start off doing their curls, but they end up, <laughs> uh, you know,
0: working hard and getting a great yep. work ethic yep. out of it. Yep. With um the rugby, how did you uh, start that? Did you always play that as a kid, or is that something that uh, came on a bit later on? No, no,
1: it was, it's always sort of been there. I yeah. uh, went to St Charles, obviously a rugby league school, and we had a really decent footy team back then. So I think you know in the younger ages, won won a couple of state championships, and yeah. old Ted Dixon was our coach, and he was a you know a legend of the. Uh, I think he's, you know, Larry Rafter, he was yeah. down there. I, you know, I only saw him a couple of years ago and he was still coaching the St. Yeah. Charles teams and looking at <laughs> I think, president of the club. And so played a lot of rugby league in those sort of younger yeah. ages and then went to locally to Waverley and that, yeah. that was like a rugby union school. So I was in, you know, they sort of frowned upon the rugby league a little bit. <laughs> so I remember my dad having to get like a face washer out and wash my knees so it looked like <laughs> I hadn't played a game of footy again. But I sort of ended up playing both till I was yeah. in my 20s. And, right. I um, you know, just loved sport, any sport, all weekend, any time. So now I sort of understand being a parent myself and having to drive my own kids to you know, yes. rugby on Saturday and again on Sunday. It's like, oh, God, thank God my parents did it for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, But it's great. I you know, loved, loved League and still love watching it. Yeah. You know, I went to school with Luke Rickardson. We both yeah. played at, at uh, Waverley together in the first 15. So you know, I, I sort of love still watching rugby league yeah. on the weekends
0: and... Uh, you know, any sport really? Yeah. Was there any time there though that you thought you may have gone to rugby league, or was always a a passion to go to rugby?
1: No, it wasn't really a passion. It's probably what I fell into first. I became a uh, you know, rugby was traditionally on a Saturday, and then league was on a Sunday, and then eventually became a social decision more (laughs) than anything else because you know turning up with. rugby league after having a few beers with your rugby mates on Saturday became harder and harder and you know that sort of New South Wales Australian under 19 age. So I didn't do anything really at school boys and then went to Ramwick Rugby Club and it was sort of a nursery and learn a lot down there Mm. from a lot of the um I think my first time ever playing in Ramwick first grade. There was only two non-internationals in the team and it was myself and Michael Checker and the rest have played you know international rugby for the Wallabies or, you know, overseas, Italy with Mark G. Carey and uh, I think Akira Nakila had played for Fiji, so there were some greats, you know, Lloyd Walker and David Knox and Brad Burke and you know, Ian McKenzie, Tony Daly, yeah. Phil Kearns in the front row. So it was a wonderful place to learn rugby. Yeah. I sort of, you know, probably grew into my body a bit then, yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know, got a bit more uh, athletic. And once again, trained hard down there yeah. in the gym, and had an old bloke Tommy O'Neill who used to, you know, train any budgie smugglers yeah. and. You know, drip sweat all over you and yell and scream at you and get you going. So, sort of came into my own, sort of that yeah. 18 and 19, and then made some rep teams from there and yeah. you know, represented Australia at that, that and the under 21s, and sort of then just you know, a couple of years at the Waratahs and then rugby became professional.
0: Yeah. Do you think that um, coming through the Ramwick days with such a, a good group of, of talented footballers that that actually helped you? move forward than actually being in a side that may not have been Yeah, definitely.
1: There was was an expectation that you won, that you were competitive and, yeah. so, you know, I probably played like 25 second grade games uh, you know, played 50 games in the Colts just over in a couple of years and then moved into the grade and, you know, so I had, you know, there was international players in front of you so if you wanted to get into first grade you needed to play and when you got in there you needed to perform so there was certain expectations for me in the younger years you know until I was sort of didn't even when I initially played at the Waratahs I probably took it for granted and it wasn't until sort of rugby became professional that I sort of you know it was rugby I was an electrician you know working right yeah three or four days a week and playing rugby on the weekend and it was like that for the first couple of years yeah. playing for the Waratahs it was still yeah. amateur so there yeah. was it was still like a bit of fun and you know you you know, doing playing with your mates and just having yeah. a good time and yeah, It sort yeah. of fell into then you know a, a world of professional rugby which yeah. was amateurish to start off right. with but it just a different lifestyle yeah. then which was good so you know playing with Randwick there was an expectation from you know, your teammates yeah. more than anything that yeah. you you know you perform and you get better and just you know, whenever you train or do anything with, you know, good skilled athletes, you yeah. just
0: get better yourself because yeah. you're you're under That's the right. bump. Yeah. You know? And then, uh, you know, as you said, it was getting more professional. To give us a, an insight into then when the Brumbies came along and and leaving sort of you know you played for Ramick in Sydney and then uh, you're saying the Waratahs and then. You went off and played for the brumbies
1: yes yeah, so i had sort of eight games with the waratahs over yep. two years so i wasn't really i think i started one of those and six or seven off the yep. bench so it wasn't really like a mainstay of that team and, and to be expected i was you know there were michael Brile willie o tim gavin there were some great rugby players that had played for the wallabies ahead of me so you know sort of rarely got the opportunity and then yep. In 1996, there was a whole shift after the World Cup in 1995 over in South Africa to move, you know, rugby became professional. Uh, So, one of the, you know, probably the most successful Wallaby coaches and Brumbies coaches, Rod Mm. McQueen, was starting a new team down at Brumbies. And so, there was a whole lot of, you know, probably half the squad were from Canberra and then the other half were sort of what later got toted as misfits and rejects from New South Wales and Queensland. But for me, it was an opportunity to. Yeah, i wasn't promised a starting position but was told there was a position to yeah. start there and you know and it was a great opportunity made the most of it and you know within sort of six months i was playing the wallabies yeah. ahead of the blokes that were at me in front of me at the waratah yeah. so just new environment like i said i moved from being an electrician working 40 hours a week yeah, to yeah. a rugby player that you know was working 10 hours a week so <laughs> it was lifestyle wise was great yeah we all moved down to Canberra. We lived in service apartments, all in the same. So I think at the same time that Beverly Hills 9010, yeah, yeah, so I'm putting, on, yeah. giving you an idea of how old it was. <laughs> but that was like they all lived in similar apartments, so we were sort yeah. of branded with that same sort of thing. But, the, you know, it was a, a great group, and we sort of all gave up and sacrificed things to move yeah. down to Canberra and, you know, play rugby, and it was a, a great yeah.
0: environment. And I think just on memory, the, the Brumbies were quite successful, weren't they, back in... Yeah, so our first era. year was
1: 1996 and we missed the first finals. By, um, we actually played the f- our first game was against uh, Transvaal and South Africa had just won the World Cup final and Francois Pienaar was the captain of Transvaal and right. they had about eight internationals and their president had said that um, you know, we weren't worthy to be on the same field mm. as them and we yeah. beat them in the first <laughs> game, which was great. We lost out to the finals in the top four in that first year by a bonus point and then yeah. Went on to play a final in the next year and then across the 10 years i was there i think we played in six finals and unfortunately only won two of them but it yeah. was uh you know it was a really competitive team and some of the greats of the the wallabies also played at the brumbies you know stephen larkham and george yeah. gregan were probably the the two but joe roff and plenty of great players
0: yeah and then uh what about uh what was the feeling like when you got the call up to the wallabies did you ever think that was ever going to happen
1: yeah it was great it was like a Well, having been in the Waratah squad in sort of 94 and 95, I was probably a little bit disappointed that I didn't get a look in at a few training camps for the 95 World Cup. In 1994, I'd gone away with emerging wallabies, and we had a trip to Zimbabwe Mm -hmm. and South Africa and Namibia, which was a great trip, but I played some pretty decent football, so you were there or thereabouts on the radar. And coming from a you know an Irish background, an Irish family, so all my siblings were born over in Ireland. I was yeah. the only one born in Australia. Right. So mum and dad are both Irish. So I had a you know I had a ask then yeah. in '95 yeah. when I didn't get picked for the Wallabies. They there was some interest from Ireland in yeah. playing there, but I, you know at that stage I'd played Australian 19s and 21s, and I really wanted to yeah. represent the Wallabies. Yeah. So it was just a matter of hanging on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was a bit of disappointment, but playing for the first time is amazing. We played, you know, Wales in Brisbane and had all my family up there, and the rest of the team always used to laugh at me because we'd yeah. come from a big Irish family. <laughs> Mum had 14 <laughs> brothers and sisters, Dad had 13, I've yeah. got over 100 first cousins, so every time we go to a game, I needed 30 <laughs> or 40 tickets. It was, a, it was a bit of a nightmare, but, you know, having your own crowd there and playing in Australia, and we had a, a, a good series. Yeah. and just the it sort of makes all uh, the you know the reason for moving from Sydney and going to you know going down to Canberra and I ended up spending like a, a decade down there playing right. with them you know, but every time I got an opportunity I was back playing for Ramwick and yep. you know loved that sort of had a real close association and engagement with yep. you, you know the community and the blokes you played with so yep. anytime time you know if we played on a Friday and we were allowed I'd be back playing I'd for play Ramwick play, on a Saturday yeah, yeah. and having a run around Coogee
0: Oval there was nothing better yeah So just on that, though, this day and age, though, that doesn't seem to happen as much, does it now? The people playing the super rugby don't seem to play the club rugby as much as what you guys did back then. Yeah, particularly not, definitely
1: not the internationals. And there's a bit of a, um, you know, the the season probably goes a a little bit longer. We used to have a a bit more of a gap in the middle of the season, but there's also not that connection. Yeah. I had probably six, seven years playing for Rambit before yeah. rugby became professional so yeah. I wanted to get back. Yeah, yeah. Now there's a lot of kids that come out of school and they go into, you know, and it might be the same in, in rugby league but they go into these academies and they're yeah. sheltered and they're training and they're not, they don't have the link and association with their club that's yeah. as strong. So when there is an opportunity to go back then, you know, they don't really, uh, do, they don't it, really yeah. do it. Yeah. So even like, you know, that was, we started professional rugby in 1996. I remember we played a whole domestic, you know, 2003 you know five or six test matches, and then we you know, had a meeting with Eddie Jones, and we were asked whether we wanted to go back and play club footy. Yeah. I think you know, out of the starting fifteen, I was the only one who went back and played right club there. footy because I was probably you know, a little bit older, yeah. and you know, playing for Randwick meant a lot, like yeah. a, just as much as pulling on a Brumbies jumper or a Wallabies. You yeah. just wanted to do it. That's your club, and you, you know, you could help your teammates and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. but now there's a bit more of a. You know, they've probably got more of an association coming out of school. The better players, yeah. where they're linked to those academies and they're in, you know, performance squads and they're in, yeah. you know, so they don't even, you know, having coached at Ramick when I came back for a few years, yeah. a lot of the young blokes were, you know, they'd turn up at Ramick training but they weren't allowed to do anything because they had, or if they did they have to wear GPS units so they can oh. track how far they're running. <laughs> and it's just the game had changed significantly yeah. and they probably don't have that connection with the ga- with yeah. their local yeah. clubs.
0: Well, um you know, when growing up at the beach, you know we always get nicknames, and and they, they gave you the nickname of Melon. Yeah, it's because I'm so sweet. <laughs> who who gave you that? It was there no, a was particular a, person. Yeah,
1: no, no, it's a couple of blokes. So uh, Andrew Hoggett, I think, was the first <laughs> one. So Hoggo is a, a one of the, him and his family, and Will Hardman, and yeah. all those boys are sort of legends of. Bondi, so we played school footy together, and it's uh, you know because of the size of my head, so it's, <laughs> we've got this many brains, we've got to have it somewhere. So yeah, but it was it's a nickname that sort of stuck, and yeah. you know, I remember they all turned up to my 18th birthday. It was fancy dress, so they all got swimming caps on, and <laughs> you know, I think there was about ten of them that got the biggest watermelons yeah. they could from the markets and all turned up as melons <laughs> with their footy jumpers on, and so it sort of stuck around for a while. So, yeah. but it's uh, it's one of those ones that have endearing sort yeah. of nickname. So. No, but uh, I've seen plenty of worse nicknames, yeah. so yeah, mine's all right. Oh, yeah, a couple cool. of my favourites was uh, John Eels is Nobody, because yeah. Nobody's Perfect. <laughs> and then uh, there was a English player, Will Greenwood. His uh, his nickname was Lighthouse in the Desert. It's because he was brilliant, but bloody useless.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's great, um, all the nicknames you get. And you, you just hope it's one that you don't mind. You don't want one to stick that you yeah, don't exactly. like. exactly. There was a, well...
1: There's another bloke called Travis Hall. His nickname was Potholes because everyone tried to avoid him. So there's always the ones you don't want, or the dentist, or that sort of thing. There's a
0: who, who was the over your career the, the one that loved practical jokes and playing jokes on on people. You know, whether it be a training or or you know when you're on tour.
1: Yeah, well, sort of. I had a bit of a, a track record yeah. for that sort of stuff, but probably the the best one was Stephen Hoyles. He was, yeah. but he was always trying to get blokes and but. You know, when people try and get him back, that that's probably the best thing that you see. Like, he organised Sean Byrne, another local bloke that played at Ramwick, to do a photo shoot, which yeah. he thought was for a magazine, and it ended up, you know, that they were they pretended that it was a gay magazine, yeah. and they took all these shots of him holding teddy bears and with his rugby shorts <laughs> on and topless and all that sort of stuff. And, and they had the bloke at the Waratahs, you know, put together a <laughs> publication and they sent it to him saying this is going to be in the magazine and. But then sean came back at him and got the keys to his flat and got some plastic and filled his whole apartment full of water and put some goldfish oh, in yeah. there and it's, so it's a lot of back and forth yeah, yeah. obviously as you got your times and stephen hoyles was quite clever at a lot yeah. of his one probably took it to the next level there's yeah. probably you know, a couple of people i was probably a little less thinking about it yeah, and just yeah. you know catch a few people and Because I remember at the Wallabies, they used to do this well-being test every morning. You had to go and sort of weigh yourself and then give yourself a mark and... Know, how you were feeling and i used to go in every day and check everyone's marks and whoever was feeling bad i'd make it my job to make them try and feel a bit worse <laughs> so they, the, the medical staff hated it every time i came in they tried to grab the paper so i couldn't go through and see who was stop feeling you know if you were putting yourself yeah. down as a five oh, you yeah, yeah. i took it on upon myself to try and get you up to a four but <laughs> by doing it a different way but uh yeah there's lots of yeah you know, one of, that's Obviously, one of the great things about playing with a professional team is travelling and, you know, so we'd be away overseas or, you know, in South Africa for a couple of weeks or over in the UK for a month and, you know, you're basically travelling with 30 or 40 of your mates and having a good time, so there's lots of time for those banter and practical
0: jokes and you've got to lighten the mood where you can well, it's probably no different to the the tower down at Bondi. You know, you walk in, you get bagged from the time you walk in to the time you you leave at the end of the day. So, it's something that uh, we're all used to growing up around the beaches. Yeah, but I think in a workplace, any sort of workplace,
1: that's not normal. No, you can't right. go in and bag, people. <laughs> that's but right. when you're in that environment yeah. where you're in the you know you're in the tower, and as soon as you walk in, or they're on the radio yeah, and yeah. The, the banter's good, yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. you know well you know they're stealing stuff off yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. ready to go to work, but your shirt's been stolen yeah, yeah. out of your bag as you're having a shower yeah, or yeah. stuff like that. So you feel bad, but it's the same. With us like you know you'd be away and you'd steal someone's you yeah. know someone to take their wedding ring off while yeah. they were training and you'd go and grab it out of their bag and so two days later <laughs> they'd <hide>. <laughs> yeah, exactly i had the same thing done to me i'd and you know, we were away on a tour in argentina and with ramwick and i think michael check it. i left my card to pay for some drinks at the bar and when the bloke gave it back check stole it so yeah within 24 hours and I'd cancelled my card, but he came and gave it back to me. It's like, <laughs> it's too late now, it's all done. So that sort of banter, yeah, yeah. sort of, you know, a little bit expected and out of the
0: ordinary in yeah, a normal
1: yeah. workplace, but,
0: you know, it's all good fun. Yeah, it's all good fun. Um, it keeps the team all, you know, it's a team environment too. It is good just... Uh a little bit of banter, long like as you don't go too far. Yeah, exactly. It's it's getting the right balance and the, yeah
1: being in a workplace now, but it's a sort of yeah. It's good for morale when people have yeah. got that degree of comfort where they can banter, and particularly in a rugby team, you yeah. know, you, you saw even with the coaches and stuff, they're giving some honest appraisal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw Ricky Stewart getting in a bit of trouble recently, yeah. you know, comparing his chats to yeah, you know, may as be may as well be playing netball, but yeah. it's you know, there is a real sense of uh, you know, Correctness now, yep. but you just got to get that that balance right between yeah. having fun and having a really good and strong environment, yep. good culture, yep. where people just take it as banter, yep. and occasionally, yeah, you know, one or two people could step across the line, That's but it's right. yep. just
0: pulling them back when that happens. Yeah. Also, well, we'll touch on now when you, you you did make the um the Wallaby team to go to the World Cup, and then uh, you actually scored the try at the end to win the game. So
1: yeah, nineteen ninety nine was. Hard like that. Uh, the first, I think it was the second Super Rugby trial we had. We were over in New Zealand, and I tried to tackle. I think it was Lomu and ended up dislocating my shoulder. So needed surgery and a full reconstruction, and you know six months of rehab, and not much time to get back in the squad. So I remember that same year, John Eels had the same injury. Right. But like, I guarantee John Eels was going to get picked because he was the captain. Yeah. But obviously I had to work hard, and you know local physios here at. Uh, uh, at, at Ramwick Junction, yeah. so I'd die long. Uh, Eastside physio spent hours and hours trying to get it back and yeah. because I'd sort of missed the the, not the 1995 one, you know, just about, there or there on the fridges, I didn't want to miss another one because yeah. they don't always come around. And in hindsight it did because in yeah. 2003 I was sort of you know, in the squad and in the team but then got dropped. So that 1999 one was sort of uh, important in hindsight yeah. but great to be, you know... I, when I first played with the Wallabies in 1996 and 97, we were known as the Woeful Wallabies. Right. So uh, we didn't win many games. But then from, you know, Rod McQueen took over in 1998, and that's when we won the Blood of And then we won it for five years straight. We yeah. won the World Cup. We beat the Lions. So the squad was great. The personnel was good. We had a, mm. a good group and worked hard for each other. We had a, a old... Steve Nance, the ex-Broncos trainer who was old school and had us running around golf courses and doing all these things (laughs) professional athletes shouldn't do, you know, taking photos of us in our cozies and then looking at us like three months later to make sure our body shape had changed. So we all worked hard. Yeah. It was, um, you know, a lot of fitness stuff, a lot of, you know, we're sort of probably ahead of the game with the team we had. We had John Muggleton who was an ex-rugby league player and, you know, probably the first rugby league coach into rugby. So, you know, installing a defensive system for us. We had uh, Jeff Miller and Tim Lane, two ex-wallabies, coaching us with Rod McQueen and really good off-the-field team but then a really good squad on the field. So, you know, it's it's amazing, you know, that you asked about the, the first game that i played like when you go out there and you're able to sing your country's national anthem yeah. and you know you're representing it yeah you know i used to sing the first little bit and then stop and then listen to the crowd singing the yeah, rest yeah. And, and you know just get that buzz and you know mm-hmm. uh, tingling up and down your spine i had to just keep singing until the camera went past because yeah, i got yeah. trouble off my <laughs> mum once because the, the camera was on me and i wasn't singing so but all that sort of stuff. So you you look at you know, those experiences are amazing. So to go overseas for we were away for six weeks, and we you know, had all our pool matches in Ireland, and then went to uh, Wales and played a quarter final, went to Twickenham. Uh, you know, we had an 18-all draw that went into extra time, in the semi final against South Africa, and yep. beat them, and then you know, ended up playing France, and to be able to score a try in the final was amazing. So I had a little bit of a inkling that you yeah, know that i had a barbecue at my place that mum and dad put on with right. like 40 odd people and you know just a farewell and good luck barbecue and i told them all that i had a dream that i was going to score a try in the world cup <laughs> final so um yeah, for that to come true is amazing so it's a you know it's probably more so now because yeah. i can make my kids watch it yeah, all the time yeah, yeah, yeah the uh the video's run out but now it's on youtube we can
0: just keep watching keep it forever it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh mate, it must be something um yeah you're very proud of to look back at and that just that achievement of um, you know just scoring the try, winning it. What, what about the celebrations and that, and, and how stoked everyone would have been?
1: Yeah, they went long and long and hard. We sort of, uh, there was probably about 12 of us that stayed over in uh, London for yep. a week and sort of celebrated yep. and had a few uh, lemonades and yep. went to a few sites around London yep. to yep. check them all out. But it, yeah, and then we came back to Australia and sort of hit home. We had yep. sort of, you know, they had ticket tape parades in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane yep. and, and went down to Canberra and had a you know, had a had an event with Johnny Howard and his wife yep. and yep. You know, went into Parliament House but then went to the lodge for dinner yep. with. Yeah, so we got to bring all our partners and um, uh, see the PM having a few beers out of the World Cup with us. It was, you know, it was... uh I actually talking about practical jokes. I got a bit into a bit of trouble because when yeah. the prime minister went to get a drink, I tipped the bottom of it and a <laughs> little bit, poured down his shirt. So I, I got a little bit getting of in a, trouble for that. got a talking to from the manager <laughs> that wasn't appropriate. We're not in our little own team room, but uh, he was happy with it and a yeah. bit of banter. But it, you know, an amazing experience and to celebrate that. And I sort of you know, so I went. You know, it was sort of a couple of weeks of celebration, yeah. and then you know, ended up getting married in 1999, the same year. So it was. Uh, it was um, B, months. Big year. Yeah, months, big year.
0: What? Um, But Australia weren't favourite, were they? You guys weren't... No, well, the, the All Blacks stats- were <laughs> always
1: sort of favourite yeah. and we'd, uh, you know, so we played South Africa and that, that could have gone either way. I think we were actually winning 18-15 oh something like that, 15-18 and I gave away a penalty with like yeah. a minute to go and Yanni De Beer had kicked five penalty goals and a field goal already, so then he kicked another one and we went into extra time, so that could have gone either way Stephen Larkin kicked a field goal from his first ever in Test Match rugby (laughs) 45 metres out and just nailed it and went for another 15 metres so you need those little bounces of luck and so we then left Twickenham in London and went down to Cardiff where the final was on and watched the All Blacks play France and the All Blacks were ahead by about 14 points and then you know just before half time the the French had this amazing 25 minutes of footy and scored four tries and turned the game. I've never seen grown men act like children as much as we did running around the pool table yee-hawing (laughs) for France and You know, all our video and coaching team had had done like a week and a half of preparation and yeah. video stuff for New Zealand, not expecting yeah. France at all to be, to be in the final, to be yeah. in the final. And it was great to see them celebrate so hard after they beat the, <laughs> beat the uh, as they do. The French probably celebrated really really well for yeah. that team. And then we had a, like a degree of comfort in in that game. And I think yeah. it, you know it was pretty. Although I sort of scored the final try, we were sort of you know twenty points ahead yeah. and really sort of locked it away. And that you know it was up to about half time I think it was only three points in it yeah. and then
0: sort of ran away with it in the back end yeah it's funny isn't it the All blacks were such a great side for decades but just couldn't seem to pull it together for the World Cups yeah they did
1: well they've sort of got their mojo back a bit yeah, but there yeah, was yeah. when I was playing there was a while there they had you know they had those sort of all black shirts with white hands around the collars yeah, as if yeah. they were chokers but they've yeah. sort of really well and truly got rid of that tag and um, but for a couple of years there they're always they' They are like they are now. Yep. They're always a wonderful team and, yep. you know, got really good players. But they had a – and particularly in 2007, I think, had a really – both Australia and New Zealand got knocked yep. out in the quarterfinal. And, you know, then that made some significant changes in yep. New Zealand on how they operate and went to a national-based system rather than having the provinces run, yep. running the. So it's really paid some dividends there. But, you know, they're great. But now all my – all my uh, all black team, all all black mates can tell uh, telling me now yeah. that anyone can have a bad couple of decades. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's been eighteen or nineteen years since we've won the Blatterso Cup now. So yeah, it's been a while. Now. Yeah, every year
0: it is. It makes me feel a little bit older. I think yeah. we lost it in two thousand and three, yeah, so it will yeah. be eighteen, it's probably 18, nineteen yeah. years. Yeah. With um rugby now, that, that they seem to be having a bit of a lean time. Australian rugby is there any reason for that, or just it's just one of those things that the players coming through it's just a bit yeah different. i think
1: um, well i think uh, strategically it's probably that it's they've had a real focus on high performance yeah. and a lot of investment in the high performance team which is which is good if your team's winning because yeah. then that draws more attraction more sponsorship more yeah. people to the game but if your team's losing it almost means you have to pump more into the high performance to yeah. get better players or recruit like a a couple of rugby league stars or like like they have with Israel Folau or players of that note. Rather than worrying about your grassroots and development. So I just see what rugby is, you know, or they've, yeah. they've changed tax a little bit and they're investing a bit more in the community game. But if, if you've got a decade of not spending money at the grassroots level, there yeah. used to be a stage where every club in Australia would get money from the Australian Rugby Union right. or Ram we could get, you know, 100 or 120,000 from the New South Wales Rugby Union. Yeah. The game is now financially at a position where every player, in the you know, under sixes to the under 18s are paying yeah. New South Wales rugby. So instead of right. the money coming down, the money's going up to yeah. pay for that up top. Yeah. So when you compete against, say, an AFL or a soccer where there's so much money in grassroots yeah. and they've got their Aus kicks or their programs, it makes it hard to compete then and you haven't got the investment in grassroots or yeah. coaching the coaches at juniors level. So the skill set isn't there for a lot of players. Yeah. So that you see performances that, that aren't of a great quality. Mm. and you, We see that... Currently, in some of our Super Rugby teams, yeah. some of the teams aren't as competitive. So we just played, what was it, twenty-five games against the New Zealand teams, and we won two out of twenty-five. Yeah. Yeah. One of those games, one of the opposition teams got a a red card or a yellow card, yeah, and yeah. they can make the difference between winning. And they were yeah. like close losses, and some of the games we're losing by twenty or thirty points. The Waratahs have just gone through a season where they haven't won one game. Yeah, so fifteen games of rugby and haven't won one. So, you know, when you thinking yeah seriously I have to look at your recruitment and yeah. your retention and what you're doing at the grassroots and it's time to you know and I think that's that's what I said up until recently there's been a bit of a yeah. shift where there's a bit more investment into the community but yeah. giving money and support to you know grassroots and clubs and development offices is really important. We've yeah. probably seen the detriment of that yeah. know, over the last couple of decades. Mm.
0: With um, like you mentioned rugby league players going to rugby union to me, it seems it's a lot of the backs. There's not a lot of forwards go from league to uh, rugby. Do, yeah, well, there's a reason. It, well, why it that- is.
1: It's fairly technical in the okay. you know the scrummaging component of it's you know technical. You yeah. actually you know and then you know you got line outs as a component, so you have got to be athletic in the air and know what you're doing. So there's you know even someone like Sonny Bill who's in the forwards in rugby league then goes into the centres, yep. uh, TO. So when I was playing. You know, we had Matt Rogers, Wendell yep. Saylor, Lottie Kiri, so the three of them came yep. over. Uh, we had Peter Ryan at the Brumbies, the Broncos and Queensland player. He played in the back row, so, yeah, you know, did a reasonably good job. Yeah. Um, you know, played in a Super Rugby Final and won it with us in the Brumbies in yep. 2004, but then probably didn't kick on to the Wallabies. So most of the, the recruits are in the backs because yep. it's probably easy, to, yep. more of a similar sort of game to transition. yeah. Yep. So in the forwards, you're expected to go to breakdowns and there's lots yeah. of technicalities. Right. And if you haven't played the game before, you could get lost yeah. pretty easy. It might yeah. take you a year or two to, to pick it all to up. Pick yeah. it all up yeah. you know, how to clean out someone properly, how to break down. You know, when you're tackled in rugby league, you just get up and play the ball. Yeah. You've got, you know, depending on your, your body position onto the ground and yeah. your ability to place the ball back depends on how, how quick the ball comes out. So there's a lot of technicalities with that and where it's more... There's a lot more similarities in the back and, you know, even an athletic forward like Sonny Bill Williams yeah. can move into the centres and be a yeah. you know, dominating ball carrier and so, so it's a bit easier. So it's probably that technicalities of it. There's been a couple but not too many that have transitioned yeah, in that true. game.
0: I remember um Matt Burke, the back in the uh, 80s he came and worked for us a little bit the Burke Brothers you would yeah. have known uh, Brad yeah, well, was Brad, Matt and well. Brad and
1: yep. Pat so yep. I played with Pat and he's sort of more my vintage but when I started at the, Run- the Randwick Brad was one of those Wallabies I was talking about mm-hmm. he was the halfback and Matt was a great sort of outside centre that played yep. with the Wallabies and back in the Alan Jones days I think they won the Grand Slam in 1984 yep. when they went over to the UK and beat all the teams over there yep. and I think Mark Eller scored a try in every game yep. so the they were sort of, you know, amazing to watch. I remember growing up and, you know, my old man, if we weren't going to the rugby live, they used to be on the ABC and you'd yeah, watch yeah. the, you know, Matt Burke them, and yeah. the Ella brothers and, the, you yeah. know, Brad Burke and you know, David Knox and all that crew, Lloyd Walker and yeah. some amazing skills and, you know, a backline like that. So no yeah. wonder Ramick was sort of built on
0: running rugby. I remember it was, it was um, pretty much only the Australian side but at one stage, the, the Ramick first grade side.
1: Yeah, they made the. They were, they've had some, you know, a lot of... Uh, well, I went to... Not that there was a lot of choice in the eastern suburbs. You either, if you want to stay local, you go to East or Randwick. Yeah. But it was sort of always... Grew up in Randwick yeah. and Coogee and it had always you know, always been on the radar. Yeah. But, uh, you yeah, know, there was a... Used to go because it was the that's where you went and you won and lots of selections and you know why wouldn't you take that pathway that's tried and true now um, you know there's a lot more sort of depth in pathways and people are coming from ever everywhere and there's you know scholarships and there's uni scholarships associated with them and playing but you know there's a lot more um, and I suppose it started when rugby became professional a lot more of the pathways and getting yourself
0: organised for life after rugby than rather just you know going and play rugby so. Becomes well, important. That's the difference I think I've noticed with rugby league players to rugby union is um, there's always thought of a career after rugby.
1: Yeah, well, I think right. you know, when you look at those, so Matt Burke, all those blokes had jobs yep. when they were playing the Wallabies. So they were you know doing their banking or real estate or yeah you know, whatever it might be, and then they'd go and train on a you know four nights a week yeah, and then yeah. you know have a week off maybe if they were playing a test match. Yep. So there was that transition. So I went from working into playing and then when I was playing I you know did a, a degree and two masters so studied yep. while I was playing because there was downtime and yep. always you know we had a you know we had uh, training and development people at yep. each club so you were encouraged um, the rugby union players association paid for a lot of your yep. education expenses to try and encourage you to to get you know to start thinking about life after rugby yep. you're yeah not not as when you're in it you don't think oh, I'm one injury away yep. from yep. finishing yep. but you know, and it probably took me two years before I started doing any study and then yeah. six or seven years to do the first bit, but yeah, then yeah. once you get going... Uh, <laughs> you get into it. Yeah, you get into it. Like what normally takes, you know, if you're doing it full-time, takes you three or four years. When you're playing rugby, you maybe get two units a yeah. semester, say, uh, or maybe one, depending yeah, yeah. on the workload. So, you know, you just ticked it over. So it took yeah. me seven or eight years for the first bit, but then I got into a bit of a, a, bit of a routine. So, yeah. no... But it, it it is important. I mean, in any sport, it's uh, you know, especially when you get the opportunity to do it professionally. You you got to be thinking it's, you're not there yep. for the long term. Yeah. Unless you're playing golf or tennis, because yeah, you can cause go on the Masters yeah. or surfing or
0: anything yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. You, you know, you can get going forever. Yeah, but most most football codes, it's yeah. You get roughly that ten year period, don't you? 10, 12 years. Yeah, of... for
1: for. Yeah, you know, the good players, but like it's for most on average, it's like two or three years. Right, yeah. Because there's always yeah you know, some young whippersnapper yeah, snapping through. at your heels. Yeah, so yeah. unless you've sort of hit the, you know, in rugby or yeah. you know if you hit the the national team, there's or even you look at yeah, you, know, you can play rugby league, but it, you know you might be on that lower yeah. tier. At some stage, you've got to stop to yeah. to get another job or to to do something else yeah. or keep going. So yeah. most people go as long as they can. So <laughs> I ended up having you know, three years over in the UK and so finished at, at the uh, Brumbies in 2005 and had, you know, yeah. till from 2005 to 2008 playing over in the UK. So yeah. it was a good way to wrap up as a bit of an old dinosaur.
0: <laughs> well, it would have been good playing. You Ireland, you played over there. Yeah, so, so was a- actually I
1: played in... So I started in Newcastle and then when the moved the next year to Ireland, so Michael Checker was coaching there. Yeah. That was his second year in, in charge of the Irish team and then the year after they went on to... Probably as I left, they went on and won the Heineken Cup, which is the the big trophy over there. And then I was basically going to come home then, but the World Cup was on in 2007 and I ended up signing a deal with another team, Leicester Tigers, in England and had one more season. So probably won too many (laughs) with a sort of – had a bit of a – accident at training where I landed in sort of a groin stretch and three people landed on top of me oh, and right. then split my groin. And <laughs> so it was like a four-month rehab and surgery and I, I had three months left in my contract, so I said, I oh, might just call it quits. <laughs> call it quits so I yeah, so yeah. started doing a bit of coaching over there and then yeah. ended up back in Australia and then yeah. coaching at the Brumbies, so both their academy and the, the Super Rugby mm. team. So it was a a reasonable way to transition yeah. because it's definitely a different lifestyle coaching to playing. It's um, yeah, every. Most people would know most. Yeah. You look at any rugby league or any season. Every you know, there's yeah. a different coach under the pump every yeah. second week because yeah. the the team might not be performing. So yeah. it's you know, it's a bit harder, and you've got that you know, different work. I think when you're a player, you turn up for two or three hours a day, and you you leave, yeah. and yeah. the coaches are there from you know before the first session at seven, and they're not finishing till
0: six, and yeah. then they're worried about everything else in between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must be harder. Well, now you've moved on. You're um, a CEO the Kids Cancer Project. Um, so tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so that sort of transition, life after rugby for me was in the not-for-profit,
1: so I was down in Canberra, stayed down there for about another four years and ran a rescue helicopter, so, you know, sort of boating accidents, a little bit like a Westpac rescue helicopter, used to go to motor vehicle accidents and uh, so my job was sort of fundraising for the helicopter and, you know, the operations was, you know, raising money and then trying to, you know, get sponsorship for the ongoing operation of the helicopter and then, about six years ago, my daughter was going into year seven. I had one boy going into year five, so they all sort of moved back to Sydney yep. and started with the Kids Cancer Project. So yep. it's sort of a, an amazing charity that was started like 26 years ago by a tourist coach driver who was right. driving along Parramatta Road there at, near Sydney Uni when the hospital was at Camperdown. Yep. Saw two ball kids cross in front of him and stopped his tourist coach and went in to find out what was wrong with them and. So for the first 12 or 13 years, he used to raise money and take them on trips to the zoo and right, circus yeah. and that sort of stuff. And then after about 60 plus funerals, one of the oncologists said to him, if you really want to make a difference, you should invest your money into science. Yep. So since 2005, we've been funding childhood cancer mm. research. So the charities, you know, without any government funding has been able mm. to commit Last year we celebrated fifty million dollars uh, into childhood cancer research projects. So we've got thirty-two across Australia at twenty-one different institutions. So both you know, uh, research projects and clinical trials in hospitals where kids are getting new drugs. So it's a, a really interesting charity, and it's sort of you know, founded on one person can make a difference. We celebrate that Cole stopped his bus and made a difference, and. And we've had had over 1.3 million Australians donate to the charity and it's a real community-based charity, which is really exciting and brings back some of the local connections. We have the, and I see you down there every year, we have the Bondi to Brodie Swim, we've been the charity partner of that. So, you know, run out of Brodie Surf Club where I started at and that wasn't through a relationship with me, that's something they were doing beforehand. But it's great to be able to go back to your old stomping ground, you know, once a year and... You know, people are swimming. I think this year's the uh, 21st, Bonnota yeah. Bronny, so I'm able to celebrate. And the Kids Cancer Project's been the charity partner and that. So when people swim, they can raise funds for the Kids Cancer Project and hit up all their mates. So yeah. it sort of works on that peer to peer fundraising. And, you know, so last year they raised, you know, just. With COVID, they had a virtual race, and we were able mm. to raise thirty or forty thousand dollars. So that goes towards funding some of our research projects. So yeah. that's one of the great things that I love about the sort of charity is that connection back to community. And yeah. A lot of our stuff, are, you know, a lot of our fundraisings, done by you know our community ch- champions in the in our community. That you know Bronny Surf Club have been one of those for yeah. almost a decade with us now, which is great. So every year there's you know, all the legends of yeah. uh, Bondi and Bronnie swimming yeah, yeah. in it and you know, it's an, a good environment afterwards and they're all doing it for a great cause. So last year, $5 from every participant went right. towards a kids' cancer project. So it's great for us to be able to grow awareness because uh, you know, every day three kids are getting diagnosed with cancer. Every week three are dying. You know, there's over a 1,000 kids in Australia every year. It's a leading killer of kids by disease. Yeah. So there's lots of reasons. You know, cancer's bad enough. When you put yeah. ca- kids and That's cancer right. together, yeah. it's it's terrible just for the kid, but for the family and yeah. for the wider
0: community. So getting that sort of support is is really good. Oh, it's a great job you guys are doing. And So where do people go if they want to, um, you know, look at what's coming up for the fundraising or how do they fund... And donate?
1: Yeah, they can do their own. They, your own fundraiser. We've always got community events, the City to Surf or the Bonita de Bronnie or the you know, Cole Classic, all those swimming races. But uh, probably the best place is kidscancerproject.org.au. So. Kids Cancer Project. You can just type it in Google and yep. all these modern things these days <laughs> that you can get to. But uh, you know, on the Kids Cancer Project Facebook page, we've always got stuff happening. So yep. uh, it's a great way to get involved and you know share a bit of community. We we rely on that sort of community and corporate support. Yep. And we've you know with you know Macquarie Bank sponsor the Bonnet Bronnie, and they're yep. great supporters of ours as well. But we've got you know, plenty of businesses that are you know willing to try and have an impact on on changing the tide on the statistics. And I think we're, you know, if you look 40 or 50 years ago, two in 10 kids were surviving. That's up to eight in 10 now. And that's through sort of research and access to clinical trials. But, you know, most people would agree that eight out of 10 is probably still not enough. And a lot of these kids get sort of debilitating side effects and secondary illness. And, uh, you know, so it's, we we continue to try and improve the the current treatments. That's the, the main goal is is improving their
0: their treatment so they've got a better chance of survival and a better quality of life yeah oh mate it's uh a great job and it's something that uh we all need to be supporting and, and looking at you know it, there's nothing worse we do a lot of uh charity work you know for the children's hospital over there at ranwick and we go over there and walk through the wards and easter and you know see the kids and it's uh it's quite devastating when you see the kids you know
1: yeah it's devastating when you're around the wards at yeah, you know, Sydney Children's Hospital, we spend a lot of time. Some of our strongest – well, not some of our – our strongest advocates are families that have yep. gone through it and either lost a child or, you know, not even lo- lost a child. The kids survived because they know how hard that mm. treatment is, how hard it is, and they don't want it – they want better for other kids as well and other yep. families. And, you know, so you walk through the wards and, you know, we uh, sell little teddy bears and deliver them to you know, seventy-one hospitals around Australia. But when you see any kid sick for any reason, it's yeah. you know, devastating yeah. to go in there and see it. And obviously, most people have had cancer in their family some way, so you don't expect it to be your child, yeah. Yeah. and you definitely don't expect it even to be your own. You know, there's grandparents that yeah. you know would, would say to you when you're in their vis- visiting, "I wish it was me," because they've yeah. had you know, 70 or yeah. 80 years of their life and it's not fair for the four or five-year-old to be yeah. going through it. But they're the amazing thing is how resilient our kids are. Yeah. So if you gave them, you know, the drugs <laughs> that you give kids, if you gave it to adults, you'd probably... But yeah. they bounce back so yeah. strongly and, you know, that, that's the, the hard thing is, you know, you have to basically poison them to make them better, yeah. which
0: is difficult in
1: some because it does
0: a lot of damage. It does, yeah. Anyway, mate, it's uh, great to... Uh have you in the beach shack and having a chat and good to catch up. Long time no see. And uh, and thanks for uh, your story of of your days of the Wallabies and also uh, what you're doing now with the with the Kids Cancer Project. Yeah, thanks, mate.
1: Uh, now when I see you on telly, I'll have that closer association. <laughs> it's, uh,
0: no, but it's great to be in the
1: sort of, you know, grow up and share your stories and being obviously in the community here. But it's sort of stories... Whether you're, you know, at Bondi or yep. Bronnie or you're anywhere in the yep. country, resonates with, you know, your local community yep. and your local sports club and getting involved and. We're lucky because we live by the beach. There's yeah. some people that aren't that lucky, but For they're sure. still you know, they're at their local rugby league club or union club yeah, or yeah. hockey, hockey or netball or anything like that. And you know, the importance of community and getting involved in it. And you, you know, the older you get, the more you realise that. Yeah, but right. uh, lovely to chat, mate. Yeah. I'm looking Great forward time, yeah. to seeing you on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: See you soon. Cheers. How good was it having Owen in the beach shack? Next up, Beach Banner. This week in the Beach Shack for the first time, we've got uh, the one and only Harry's. Welcome, mate.
2: Thank you for having me. I can't wait. We've been <laughs> shacked up for years, haven't we?
0: Mate, there's plenty of Beach Banner. We have room plenty of times together. Uh, mate, the first one to we'll start with is, uh, you know, being a lifeguard for so many years now. You know, give us uh, an insight
2: into that and some of the uh, major sort of things you've dealt with yeah well it's been 26 years as a lifeguard I remember thinking about being a lifeguard and I remember coming to you as a young boy and saying do you reckon I could do it and you'd pretty much watch me grow up on the beach you knew what ability I had in the water and you said you got to give it a crack mate yeah um I didn't see it as a permanent job I I thought it was just going to be a fill-in job and I was going to get a kind of proper career, yeah. um, you know, I did move into other stuff, but I always kept that, you know, that lifeguarding job. And I also remember, like, I obviously rescued lots of people being a clubby, but I remember the first rescue working with you down at Bronny Beach, and you'll probably remember this. It was a, yeah. like the day was just perfect. We're sitting on lounges out, out on the promenade because that's what we <laughs> did back in the day with shirts off, and up. Yeah. And I spotted someone about a K and a half out to sea. I said, what's that, Hoppo? And you go, you better go out, mate. And I remember pulling this um, American lady back into shore that um, tried to take her life and she could swim really well. But bringing her back in and she fell asleep on the front of the board and I remember you being on the shoreline (laughs) going, how does this happen to you?
0: Yeah, I remember that. She was swimming. I think her idea is just to keep swimming out to sea as far as she could go until eventually she couldn't stay afloat. But you've spotted her, got her and brought her back in. There's been a few on the the board, mate, that looked a bit dead coming in.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, spotted some mermaids (laughs) off the rocky face, but not that far out. And, um, you know, so that really kind of set that benchmark of this amazing career. I never thought that you and I would still be here doing the job that we do love. Um, You know, like we're moving to different things now, but, you know, saving people, I suppose the greatest thing for me is... No one's ever drowned on my watch. Yep. Been a lifeguard, which is incredible. Um, you know, I put that down in my work ethic, definitely. Yeah, well, it's a good record, David, 26 years. 26 years, you know, like and I'm really proud of that. And I've never turned up late to work. And that in the modern day, as Hoppe knows, being the boss, yep. it's really hard to get anyone to turn up on time. Yep. And so I really have had that two things. And um, the job's been amazing. It's given us so much. You know, the good part about the job is we've met so many incredible people and what gave us that opportunity to get the job was people like you, Johnny Gannon, yeah. you know, and the job is really, a guy said this to me, he goes, this job's been amazing for you lifeguards because it's entree you into getting other things out on the outside world and yeah. It has. It's really entreated us. It's. It's. We're, we're so lucky.
0: Yeah, it was like when I started. It was a, a job you did before you went and got a real job. You know, it was just a, a part time job filling in till you worked out what you wanted to do. And I never forget. I remember you and, and and your twin brother Sean turning up down the beach at about fifteen years old, fourteen, fifteen, and you know you were running around surfing, and I was I was working then, and I, I, looking back now in hindsight, I thought, imagine, you know. I've actually worked with you for so many years, but I remember when you both turned up down there and, uh, yeah, it's been a, a good career for both of us. So it's something that um, the achievements we've done, you know, we're rescuing someone, it's just an amazing feeling to rescue and, and resuscitate people and, and just helping
2: people in general. Yeah, well, I look back, you know, I'm, it's been thousands of rescues, not just like being a lifeguard, but surfing. I'm doing more rescues as a surfer you know, over the last probably ten years that I have as a lifeguard, you know, more because I'm delegating someone out to do it. Yeah. But um, I remember this rescue and this one. Like, there's little things that stick out, you know, in your career and like that. Not, I don't know. People would call them highlights. For us, I think it's a um, a protective mechanism. I never forget this guy. who's really muscly, He's about six foot four. And um, you and I went out to rescue these guys and and um and they were like from. Italy, they, were, you know, they will just they will big, muscly guys, and I never forget this guy got you in a headlock and pulled you off the board. He was screaming, and he like literally took you for a death roll, you yeah. know. And I never forget, like I had to rescue this other guy, and he become like secondary for me because I just jumped off the board. I've jumped onto the bloke that's got you in a headlock, and I remember we yeah. took him under, and I've got him in a headlock, yeah. so he'd, he'd let you go. Obviously, he's in a fight of survival. So that protective mechanism is just is there because we live in the ocean. Yep. It, you know, that's our backyard. Yep. So, you know, they want to go up, we go down, yep. and they will let go.
0: Yeah, as soon as you take them back under. I remember that was, was something that's, uh, you know, can be quite scary. You know, that's why we always take rescue equipment with us because they just want to grab hold of anything, you know. So, yeah, taking them under was the best thing. So you saved my life
2: there. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, – <laughs> I was waiting for the kiss to bring me back to laugh, baby.
0: Well, that's, an- that's another episode after uh, a few times we've roomed together.
2: <laughs> well, they used the defibrillator now. We didn't have defibrillators when we started, so sometimes the old uh, the old tongue sambo brought people back to life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Harry, it's great to have you in the beach chat, mate, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Love ya. It's always a good time in the beach shack. Now I answer letters from the fans. This week's question is from Beth, and she asks, what is your favourite part of the beach? Well, Beth, I think the uh, best part is down at North Bondi. Uh, You can get in the sun, the afternoon sun there. It sets late, so you stay uh, a bit warmer down that end, whereas it gets uh, a bit more of a shadow down south earlier, so a bit more localised as well at North Bondi, so there's more people that I know and can hang out with in the afternoons. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's A Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments or follow us on our social media channels which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.